algorithmic bias, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, um, and it is called Any Sufficiently Advanced Neglect is Indistinguishable from Malice. Um, this title comes from uh, a repurposing of Clark's Law, uh, Any Sufficiently Advanced Technology is Indistinguishable from Magic, uh, repurposed by Dr. Debbie Chatra. She's a material science engineer at Olin College of Engineering up in Boston. Um, this idea that any sufficiently advanced neglect is indistinguishable from malice means that we're talking about instances in which a hazard was known or at least was foreseen by certain groups, was warned about and was warned about persistently enough uh, in relation to uh, either a system uh, put in place, a technology created, or both, um, but was ignored that the position of those who forwarded this knowledge was, uh, uh, went unheeded. And it then created what were for those groups uh, entirely foreseeable harms. Uh, those harms then have in turn persisted long enough with enough people raising a cry about them uh, who then go on to also be subsequently ignored <laughs> that those who claim ignorance to them uh, are not really meaningfully distinguished from those who would actively seek to harm. A harm created through persistent ignorance, through willful ignorance of harm raised, uh, is not necessarily very different from harm intentionally done. To talk about this, I want to go through a few case studies. A couple of them are going to be very familiar because we've literally just heard about them. Uh, but uh, a couple of them will hopefully be uh, new to you. And I'm going to give the case studies of them. And I'm going to go ahead and give some of their backgrounds as well. Um, various resume sorting algorithms currently exist, which have been uh, trained to sort resumes based on uh, applicant pools that have problems with things like women-sounding names or quote-unquote black-sounding names. Um, those resumes, even when uh, controlled for exactly the same credentials, training, background, and education, go on to be rated lower than names that are quote-unquote white-sounding or male-sounding. This has been a persistent problem in resume sorting by humans for a very long time and when the resume sorting training was given to various machine learning algorithms those biases made their way into those systems. Many are trying to find uh, ways around this uh, anything from as simple as just removing names from the applicant pool and doing a more blind review to um, actively antagonizing against that bias for a different kind of bias to the other end of things. Uh, natural language processing has a lot to do with this. There's a case that came out uh, 2016 that said that biases in natural language corpora, like email uh, caches that are used to train uh, natural language processing for machine learning algorithms then manage to pass on biases like gender differentials to those machine learning algorithms and those natural language processing systems. Um, there's a reason for this. Uh, do you know what the largest cache of openly available natural language corpora is? 
No. What's the URL? It's the Enron emails. So, a group of emails <laughs> comprising hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lines of natural language text between a very specific class and category of people who talk in very specific gendered, powered, and racialized ways about the topics under discussion. This is what's used because the Enron emails were entered into public domain when Enron was put on trial. <laughs> and so now it is publicly and freely available to all to use to train their algorithms. Bail and sentencing algorithms we literally just heard about, but I want to talk about a little bit of a different case. Um, this is from the Broward County, Florida usage of Compass. Uh, you see pretty much exactly the same things that Clinton was talking about, though. Uh, on the left, we have Bernard Parker, one prior offense for resisting arrest without violence. That is, most likely he probably moved his arm while an officer was putting his cuffs on. Um, that is resisting arrest, by the way. Uh, zero subsequent offenses until the time at which he was re-entered into the system and rated a high risk. Dylan Fugit, one prior offense for attempted burglary. Three subsequent offenses after that for drug possession rated according to Compass as a low risk. Same sentencing uh, county, obviously, Broward County, Florida. Uh, same high likelihood of being the same judge doing the sentencing and these very drastically different outcomes. You can get this information and you can see uh, the Compass algorithms, all of their metrics, um, looking at roughly 11,000 to 12,000 different subjects in Broward County, Florida. You can find this on uh, ProPublica's investigation, uh, looking at the, you know, the, the way that Compass operates. Self-driving cars. Machine vision, LIDAR, detection of self-driving cars and how self-driving cars operate on the road. Um, self-driving cars and the algorithms that allow them to see the road are trained based off of uh, pattern recognition matching algorithms that are designed to teach it how to see what it sees. What self-driving cars cannot see very well are black people in wheelchairs. Especially if a person using a wheelchair does what many people do when they use wheelchairs. I don't know how many of you know wheelchair users in your lives. Um, sometimes instead of uh, what we think of as standard sitting in a chair and pushing the wheels forward kind of use, people in wheelchairs, wheelchair users tend to push backwards off of things because it increases speed and power and the ability to maneuver. Yeah, self-driving car has no idea what to do with that. And the likelihood of a self-driving car hitting a wheelchair user who is using a wheelchair in what it considers to be a non-standard way is roughly 90%. Speaking of imaging systems not being able to see black people, Google had a very persistent problem of not being able to properly categorize black people uh, in its image search. In fact, when it was given images of black individuals, it would return pictures of gorillas or chimpanzees. This is not because somebody went in and taught it that black people are gorillas or chimpanzees. This is because it was not taught 
anything and it tried to match its best fit because no one in the team doing the initial training and data collection thought to give it a better way of understanding or seeing people with darker skin tones. This has a long, long history in image collection and production. We'll talk about that again in a second, but before we get there, I also want to talk about the fact that Nikon cameras ask questions like this. They look at individuals with Asian phenotypes who happen to be smiling in their image of facial recognition and ask, did somebody blink? Which, in case you weren't aware somehow, is super racist. But because nobody on that team, nobody on the development, the design, the process, the training, thought that, hey, there are certain metrics that we are coding for or assuming to be universal across the board, this didn't come up until this was out in the field. In addition, we have problems like automatic sinks, soap dispensers, and paper towel dispensers not being able to see darker skin tones. I had this problem yesterday in the YMCA building on the fourth floor. Um, had to walk downstairs to use the sink. You have HP developing a motion-sensitive camera that's supposed to track faces to keep the face in the center of the frame regardless of where the user sits, not being able to see black people. You have a long racialized history of darker skin tones not being able to be properly rendered in photographic equipment that has been digitized and translated into digital camera technologies and encoded as tools and techniques that get rendered and used in technologies. Photographic technology was designed and developed for the use of affluent white people. That sounds reductive, but it's just the fact of the matter. Um, when it was developed, that's who would get to use it. When you were asking how do we make sure the details are renderable for the people in this picture, the details you were looking at were the faces of the white people being photographed. That required the use of certain tools of optics, certain techniques of chemistry to make sure that the contrast was properly allocated so that those people could be seen. What that turned into was clear detail on light colors and almost impossible to render details on anything darker. If you look at pictures, photographies from the 19th and early 20th century, what you will see very often, if there happens to somehow, for some reason, be a black person in that picture, is a dark blur. These tools and techniques were rendered and reinforced and reinscribed over and over and over again until such point as they became the accepted way of doing photography. That accepted way of doing photography then became the techniques and tools, the accepted methodology by which digital camera technologies were trained. Even today, a digital camera will white balance on the lightest thing in the frame before it tries to balance anything darker. This comes from Kodak's Shirley cards, which was literally a white woman named Shirley and you would use it to balance the white image for the picture and you would try to like get as clear an image of her as you could. 
Again, this is not to say that somebody said, you know who I don't want to take pictures of? Black people. I mean, somebody probably said that, but like photography as a whole didn't say that, right? What happened is that a series of assumptions, a series of biases about the way things are and the way things probably would continue to be were inscribed as assumed knowledge. And that re-inscription and reassumption once again got encoded for hundreds of years. It has made its way into surveillance technology. One of the weird offshoots of facial recognition, not being able to see black people very well, is that, ironically and paradoxically, it gets used with greater frequency on communities of color. Communities of color are very much more often subject to over-policing uh, on the assumption that the person, quote unquote, fits the description, brought in by police, and uh, in many cases just outright harassed because they, again, fit the description. Facial recognition systems that cannot see darker skin tones are still much more likely to be rendered off of mugshots from databases that include those people who quote unquote fit the description but match no specific features of description. What this means ultimately is that facial recognition is going to be the least accurate on the population on whom it is used the most often. You can look at the Georgetown Center for Privacy and Technology study of the perpetual lineup from 2016. They talk a lot about exactly this. It's a very long, very detailed, and thoroughgoing report. It is fantastic. Um, however, many people think, well, the answer to this is inclusion, right? We, we diversify the teams who are doing the training. We diversify the applicant pool. We diversify the training pool. However, that doesn't work for everybody. In the 2018 talk called Don't, Inc uh, uh, Don't Include Us, Thank You, Sarah Arun and Nasma Ahmed look at Simone Brown's Dark Matters uh, talking about the history of facial recognition and photographic technologies as we pre recently discussed them. And they talk about the idea that um, even if we were to make these technologies more accurate for the people who are most likely to be subject to them, it's not going to make them less often used on communities of color. It will, in fact, provide an excuse to use them more often on communities of color. Taylor Stone's uh, talk yesterday about streetlights and surveillance uh, made me think a lot about this when I was thinking about the idea of people who do surveillance on communities that they expect to be trouble. This is that exact same kind of problem. Moving away from facial recognition, but back into Google, we can talk about Dylan Roof's Google history. Dylan Roof killed nine people in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, he did so because he had uh, a moment during the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman trial in which he thought that he was understanding something about the nature of crime and inequality in America, and he was driven on his own account for reasons that he couldn't quite articulate to search black on white crime. 
We have no idea to know exactly what he was returned, but the way that Google search works, and you can look up exactly how Google search works, um, it's highly likely that the very first thing he saw was based on his ISP, based on his location, and based on the searches in his area, uh, white supremacist propaganda about statistics about black on white crime. Uh, I've got a short primer basically on how to change your Google search settings, by the way, if anybody wants to take a look at that later. You can make it not take your results from your surrounding area and you can make it remove as much about you as possible. Um, a more recent tragic example, um, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh just this last year. Uh, white supremacist wandered into a synagogue and murdered a dozen people. Um, days, literally days after this happened. Facebook's online ad metric architecture, which has been given wide berth to create categories for advertising on its own remit, generated a category for the white supremacist conspiracy theory, white genocide. It said to someone who was talking about Jewish life and the hassles and hazards of Jewish life, an investigator from The Intercept, um, hey, this post that you're making uh, seems to fit with the ideas of these people who are interested in white genocide. There's about 180,000 people on Facebook who are interested in white genocide. And if you add that word or that phrase in, your post will reach a wider audience. Facebook's ad mechanism did this on its own. It was trained to do this, to find those patterns and to generate ad development and ad categories on its own. Uh, a week later, Amazon did the same thing. So how does this happen? Like I said, it happens because the data sets these things are given, the code that they're trained with, and assumptions at base. Assumptions of things like objectivity, of neutrality, or of shared knowledge and experience of the world. Uh, in each of these cases, again, a community of individuals spoke up in advance and very clearly said, hey, maybe don't do that. Maybe don't create the algorithm to do these things. Maybe think about the outcome of these technologies because these technologies have a history prior to this in such a way that it is uh, highly likely that they will continue to reproduce systems of oppression and bias and bigotry. So maybe rethink what you're doing. And in each case, they were not heeded. Why? Because of what we count as knowledge in the first place. What we think counts as knowledge doesn't often include things like lived experience. And if it does include lived experience, the person whose lived experience it includes is often not those who have been marginalized by overarching systems of knowledge, assumption, authority, and expertise. We tend to preference systematized knowledge, but systems based on what? Systems based on what kinds of inputs? It's a question that we do not often enough ask. 
And the question that we very rarely ever ask is, what about both of these things in tandem? What about people who, through their lived experience, have developed systems of knowledge that are not exactly reproducible for anyone who has not had that lived experience directly? Who gets to know? Who gets to lay claim to knowledge, to expertise, to have that knowledge and that expertise heated and recognized by the wider world? Sorry for the wall of text. A few fundamental points here. Different phenomenological and post-phenomenological experiences produce different pictures of the world, different systems of knowledge by which to navigate that world. Code is not neutral, it is a language, and like any language, translation is an issue. We are translating our knowledge, our lived experience gained from perspectives into technoscientific language. Systems can understand. People inscribe their values, their perspectives into every single tool and system they create and into how they use them. We need to think intersectionally and intersubjectively about the construction of our knowledge. We need to think about those people who have not been included in the conversation about what it is we ought to be thinking about in the first place, what systems we ought and ought not to be trying to create, and how we ought to be and ought not to be deploying them. For this, we can think about Donna Haraway's notion of the subaltern. We can think about, again, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw's notion of intersectionality of oppression. And we can think about the idea that this is not about some kind of oppression Olympics. It's about the idea that different locuses of power, different identities, different subjectivities will be impressed upon and subjectified in different ways depending upon the society in which they live. I usually ask these questions at the outset of my talk, but I feel like this is a good place for them. These foundational questions of things like where do you, how do you travel home? When you travel outside of a car, where are your keys? What do you do when a police officer pulls you over? What kind of things about your body do you struggle with whether and when to tell a new romantic partner? If you're able to stand for how long? How do you prepare your hair on any given morning? What strategies do you have for keeping yourself out of institutional mental care? Without looking how many exits to the lobby are there and how fast can you reach them, encountering the fewest people possible? What's the highest you can reach unassisted? What's the best way to reject someone's romantic advances such that it's less likely that they will physically assault you? Each and every one of these questions represents a category of lived experience and a system of knowledge developed around, a way of behaving and interacting with and predicting in the world, developed around real, everyday, lived experiences for trying to survive and save one's own life. It matters who gets to know, to be known, and to translate their knowledge into techno-scientific systems and devices. Thank you. I have here at the end uh, quite a long list of references to all the things that I was talking about, in case you want to look them up. They are increasing every day. Questions? Matt. So um, I sort of feel like the beginning of your talk, uh, so the, frame, the initial framing of the talk and the end of the talk are kind of competing 
uh, to interpret the examples in the middle. Mm -hmm. So what I heard in the beginning was a kind of um, discussion about foreseeable harms and the failure to take into account foreseeable harms. Right. Um, which I would, you know, I would use the language of like the of moral recklessness and moral negligence. Yes. To think about, um, and uh, then I would then and I would interpret the, the examples then as a sort of straightforward um, ethical failure, failure to take into account a risk in an appropriate way. Mm -hmm. um, the end of the talk is um, sort of epistemologically framed, and it's about situated knowledges yep. and and Failure is, is a failure, kind of a, of the of the knowledge system. Yes. Right. Um, rather than being a sort of values or ethics oriented failure. Um, so I was I was hoping that you could say something to kind of mm -hmm. bring it together for me. Not rather than because of. The failure in the values and the moral system is because of the failure in knowledge, because of the failure in an epistemological. Uh, reckoning and uh, a recognition of the epistemological status of those who might otherwise have prevented these moral failures or at least mitigated them. So that in and of itself is also a moral failure. It's a systemic moral failure. It's a moral failure to recognize those people as holders of knowledge, as uh, caretakers of expertise, to recognize what they have as expertise and systems of knowledge as such, because they are not presented in very specific, strictured ways. And by that mechanism, by that metric, they are then discounted as potential sites and sources of knowledge. And in so doing, we lose access to the moral status, the values framework on which we might have made better choices. Foresight is the linking. Yes. Yeah. So um, there's two ways to construe the claim here, I think. I just want you to tell me if I'm out of it or which one is more what okay. I want to say. Uh, so, one way we say, well, there's a problem with the failure to include different kinds of people in these systems. So, uh, if the training data would include black people or take into account that there was over policing, then it would do a lot better, right? That's, that's one way. The other way, and I think this is probably, I don't remember the Simone Brown book that well, but that somehow the idea of quantification and statistics itself yes. is in several ways tied to racism. Yes. Like the flagship yes. manifest. Am I reading you right? Do you favor this, this sort of the Simone Brown argument? Yes. Okay. More, moreover, like it is, it is clear to be able to say that yes, we could do a better job of measuring and quantifying uh, certain categories of people, but it is also clear that, and this is Brown's argument, this is Safia Nobles, this is yeah. uh, right. Nasma Meds and Sarah Oon's argument that when we have done so in the past, we have used it specifically to oppress and harm others. Blood quantum for Native Americans, uh, the you know, measuring of uh, breath and uh, physiognomical capacity for African Americans, all of these have histories of very precise and inscribed and careful measurement being used to make the lives of certain groups of people hell. Yeah. Um, so following Gordon's question, I had a similar 
sort of question in mind about which of the sort of critiques you are looking at, sort mm -hmm. of like Joy Young Moon, mm -hmm. she says like we need these technologies to be more. Yeah, I meant to I meant to include Joy's work in here because the Algorithmic Justice Project is amazing in yeah. terms of a remedy here. But. It is though it like it more pitches to what Gordon framed as the first right. horn, right? Where you sort of say like we need to make these predictions more accurate across the board, rather than a ladder critique that says this this kind of predictive apparatus is going to reproduce the kinds of discriminatory logic that we're worried about, that is no matter what. Right. Right. So, I, I mean, I also think both are really interesting critiques. I also with you in thinking that the latter critique, or the more radical critique, is more promising. Right. But then my question is like, given what I think you laid out as like really useful sets of um, questions that can prime us to get outside of our normal, normative, epistemological ways of solving these problems. Right. Like, what what lesson do we take from that for further developing this radical critique? Do we take this as like, like obviously this is not an argument for like more diverse tech teams, right? right? That's not gonna do anything. No. Um, <laughs> good. I meant, I meant to put a picture of Stanford's, uh, like the, the AI yeah. ethics team that was like 120 white people. Well, like, there, are, there are like independent right. arguments yeah. for diversifying tech, but right. this is not one of them, right? Because right? it's not going to pick up um, Do we think of this as like helping us articulate constraints that we should place on the kinds of predictions that we think these systems should be allowed to make? Do we think right. of it as like an argument for abolishing these kinds of systems right. entirely and coming up with new ways of doing this kind of work? Like what, what's I, the normative lesson? My, my normative lesson is uh, heed marginalized people, fundamentally and foundationally. And uh, in, like don't include them necessarily in your training data, but include them in the questions that you ask at the outset and who you think to ask about what you ought to do. I don't think that there's going to be, and this has come up a couple of times in our previous conversations, it's not gonna be a one size fits all answer for what we do and when we do it in every single kind of case. There's going to be um, a matrix uh, shifting dynamic engagement of needs, stakeholders, and uh, ultimately power dynamics that need to be redressed. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that in a way that harkens a bit towards justice is gonna be some way that allows us to say, okay, who have we not included? So to ask that question, who have we not thought about? Whose harms, whose needs, whose voice has been perhaps speaking but unheeded for a very long time? And how do we ensure that the things that they have called out as potential sites of failure don't go unremarked, don't go unaddressed for such a long time that we one day turn around and go, whoever could have thought that this camera or this facial recognition technology might in some several ways be racist, except for all of the hundreds of people who told you that for the past several decades. I do recognize, by the way, that it's really close up on our, our break time. It's actually past the start of our break time, so if y'all wanna get some coffee, I definitely understand and I don't hold it against you. But if you wanna stay here and keep talking, I'm also willing to do that. Josh. So, Yeah, I mean, there have been several instances in the very recent past that have said, you know, 
everybody looks at and goes, why, why would you do that? Like, why would you, why would you try to make that technology? It would fundamentally be used for uh, oppressive structures. And facial recognition technology in the service of surveillance is one of them, um, primarily. Like, uh, so Ruha Benjamin talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago at uh, the Gender Bodies Technologies Conference in down in Roanoke. And she was talking about this idea that, you know, looking at the prison industrial complex, looking at the, the carceral justice system, there are certain technologies that are only ever going to forward the oppressive aims of carceral justice, that are never going to help us to uh, overturn that oppressive use of power and that facial recognition for surveillance is primary among them. So I think that, yeah, we can see instances in which uh, things like that, things like uh, that facial recognition that purports to be able to tell you if, you're, you know, if somebody's gay. Like, when there are systems in the world, there are political systems and regimes in the world right now who want to, better be, you know, to be able to better identify gay people so that they can kill them, why would you make that? Why would you even prove that concept? or attempt or purport to prove that concept, because by the way, their methodology is garbage and they prove nothing. Um, <laughs> it, proves, it proves not anything at all. Uh, why would you even move towards something like it though? Why would you give someone the tool to be able to say, I have a quote unquote objective mathematical system that proves that certain people are gay? Yes. Yes. It has quote unquote no scientific. It's all of that has been debunked right. historically, but now it's re-emerging yes. with this legitimacy right. and sort of scientific aura. Right. Uh, um, and being sold and used yes. for quote unquote national security, right. control, etc. Absolutely. But it's a reenactment yes. of it's that history. One of the one of the links that I that I put forward, and I think I put it in the uh, in my, my reference slides. There's a, just it's just physiognomy all over again. It's physiognomy and phrenology again. It's this idea that there is a particular type of bodily metric that we can be able to to make and make fit, and uh, that necessarily elides disabled bodies. It necessarily elides uh, fat bodies. It necessarily elides. Uh, any non-normative body like, that, that we want to say is you're not right. You're not the right kind of person, quote unquote, right kind, right? And that is exactly what's being repurposed, but it's being, again, given this air of this kind of scientific veneer again. It's being said, oh, you know, the math says it's okay. You know, the math is just another system that we've reinscribed our biases into. That's, you can make it do anything. <laughs> you just have to know the system well enough to make it do anything. But that doesn't mean it's quote unquote objective. It doesn't mean it's bias free somehow. There's no such thing. Thank y'all. Really appreciate being here.